Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I see the cross, oh, teach my heart to cling. Hast thou not bid me love thee, God and King? Spirit, help my unbelief. Good morning. Wow, thank you. Yeah, awesome. Social obligation, there's a transition in a new person, so we must clap. Uh, so I love this title slide because I imagine it's what 90% of the people in the room are saying. I don't know Science Mike. Why on earth did I skip out on brunch to hear a podcaster? And if you don't know what a podcaster is, it's someone who sits alone in their front bedroom and talks into a microphone and then random people download it on the internet. And you may be asking yourself, why would anyone ever download this guy's voice off the internet? Well, one, and this is important, I have an amazing voice. <laughs> it's the perfect timber. I've got just enough southern smoothness to disarm people. But the second reason is my extensive qualifications. I am, in fact, a high school graduate, and I went to community college for three weeks. So why do I go, why do people call me Science Mike? It's because of, have you ever known someone who's like an NFL like super fan? Like they don't just know like their team and their stats and their quarterback, they know all the teams and all the quarterbacks and who won the Super Bowl in 1965 and the point spread. That's me, but I follow scientists. So if you want to know about football, you could do worse than asking an NFL super fan. If you want to know like casual things about science, you could do worse than Science Mike. That's really it. And uh, I don't know what you're expecting this morning, because I don't know what I'm expecting this morning. I, uh, uh, about a month ago, my dad had a stroke, and uh, it was a major stroke, really a nasty one. For a guy that reads about the brain all the time, it was even scarier to look at an MRI and understand like what part of the brain was so deeply affected. And uh, I love motorcycles, and I left my motorcycle in the garage for three weeks while I was driving to the hospital every day for four or five hours to stay with Dad. And one day I decided uh, to take my motorcycle to go see Dad so it didn't sit too long, because if motorcycles sit too long, uh, when you start them up, they have a tendency to stall. And if your car stalls, it's no big deal. But if your motorcycle stalls, it falls over. So I was uh, turning out of my neighborhood, and my motorcycle stalled, and I hit the ground pretty hard, and I got a concussion. Um, and so if I get excited or nervous, I can't talk. So you think you're at church this morning, but you're actually at Science Mike Occupational Therapy. <laughs> I'm literally right now making sure I can still speak publicly with 80% uh, of my memory efficiency absent right now. So if I get a little lost this morning or if I stop talking, just bear with me. But I gotta say right now, I feel like it's going pretty well. <laughs> so, here's what, by the way, I love your church. If you don't know me, I know your community. Um, the reason I talk about science and faith is I spent some years as an atheist. I grew up Baptist, became an atheist. And then I had a, a moment where, if you can believe this, I uh, feel like I met God face to face on a beach. I heard Jesus talk to me, so I'm either deeply religious or schizophrenic, one of the two. <laughs> we'll figure that out this morning. 
And one of the turning points in my life was uh, at Dale's house. In fact, like the science mic thing, somebody made that up at Dale's house, and it just stuck. I didn't like come up with science mic. And today, we're going to talk about what it's like to not know if God is real. And I have a spoiler alert. I don't even know if God is real. So if you're expecting like definitive God proof this morning, just go ahead and leave. Uh, instead, I'd like to ask a few questions to kind of figure out where you are. And uh, the way I work is I kind of tune my talks based on how your eyeballs respond to different questions. So you're being tested right now. Don't get nervous. The first thing I want to ask is, does prayer work for you? Do you feel like prayers get answered? Do you feel like when you pray, good things happen or bad things happen? Or uh, do you feel like God is close to you? Like if you were to think right now, if God had a physical presence, how far away from you is it? Is it like in the chair next to you? Is it in China? <laughs> is God in your physicality somehow? Just go ahead and picture that. How close is God to you? Uh, does God seem distant ever? In fact, sometimes does God seem ridiculous? Have you ever like prayed and thought, why the heck am I doing this? I actually prayed one time and in the middle of the prayer, I said, God, I don't even know why I'm praying you don't exist, and became an atheist in like 25 seconds. It was phenomenal. Uh, so my point is, if that's you, if today you're like, sometimes I just don't know if I can do the God thing, I totally get you. Like, I totally get it. It seems really silly that like some cosmic being created everything and is now listening to me talk about the fact that, you know, I can't remember things very well and I need healing. It just seems, it seems weird. Like, if you look at it objectively, it seems weird. And uh, that's because this typifies religious conversation in our society. Did anybody catch this brilliant uh, moment where Ken Ham, who's a young earth creationist, debated Bill Nye? I watched the whole thing, and if my wife was here, she could tell you, I screamed at the TV like it was a football game. <laughs> now you may ask, which side was I rooting for? I don't know. I got pretty upset with the betrayal both of faith and science in that debate, though. But that's the thing. We treat it like, like faith is a Rubik's Cube, like God's a puzzle, and we got to get all 11,000 pieces to make the picture, right? Well, we got to get green all on the same side, because frankly, that's how science works. And whether you're uh, into science or not, you're heavily influenced by scientific thinking because it makes iPhones, and everybody loves iPhones. <laughs> What we're talking about today is the brain. So what I've found is that often we talk about doubt as a spiritual condition, which is a totally legitimate way to talk about doubt. Uh, if spirits exist, <laughs> then doubt is a spiritual condition. But in the work that I do and the people I talk to, some people can't even take the assumption that spirits are a thing seriously. Now, I'm not sure why those people <laughs> listen to my podcast, uh, but they do, and that's probably because sometimes I get puzzled about it. Here's the thing. The human brain is the most intricate, miraculous, complex matter in the entire universe. 
according to the human brain. You've got 86 billion neurons. Now, you may have heard that you have 100 billion neurons, and that's Huey because you can't count neurons very easily when you have 100 billion of them. And the brain has different densities. So you have like four tissue papers worth of brain matter uh, on the outside wrapping your brain your neocortex. And even though it's tiny, it's 80% of your neurons, right? So like your limbic system, the part of your brain that like makes you really angry in traffic, doesn't have nearly as many neurons. It's, it's kind of like a puppy brain or a, a rat brain, right? So one researcher figured out exactly how many neurons there were by making brain soup. It's delicious. Um, no, they dissolved all the cellular matter in a brain, but preserved the nucleuses and then mixed it so that you had an even distribution of nuclei. And then you can count how many neurons you have, and you have 86 billion. And the reason I say that all the time is because now you know more than neuroscientists. Because if you ask a neuroscientist how many neurons a human has, they'll say, about 100 billion. And you can go, ha ha, sucker, I listen to Science Mike. I know I've got 86 billion neurons. And if the neuroscientist says, well, that's no big deal, you can go, well, the difference between 86 billion neurons and 100 billion neurons is kind of similar as the difference between a human being and a chimpanzee. So if I had 100 billion neurons, I could levitate that table, right? It's just, it's a big difference. But doubt exists in your neurological makeup. Everything you know about God exists in your brain. I often tell people that Jesus, under no circumstances, lives in their heart. Jesus lives in their anterior cingulate cortex, <laughs> the part of the brain responsible for compa com excuse me, compassion and empathy. Uh, that was a little scary. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, God lives in your brain. So doubt lives in your brain. And so what I have found, it's remarkably effective with all of us moderns, if we stop treating doubt as a spiritual condition and start to treat it like a neurological one, what if we treated doubt in the church the way clinicians treat depression? What if we studied through science what works and what does not? Now, if you're skeptical about the whole brain is responsible for who you are and what you believe thing, have a concussion or a stroke. It's pretty definitive, right? Like my dad, his temper's gone because he had damage to his amygdala. He can't get angry. My dad had like a famous, famous temper. If you roll off at like 450 hertz, that will stop. Um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> so, and I have a phenomenal memory until I hit my head on the pavement. And now my memory, I went from a 99th percentile to a 10th. Right? It's my brain. Doubt's the same way. So we're going to talk today about doubt the way neuroscientists look at it. It's totally a juke. We're not even going to reference a single theologian. Sorry. <laughs> so one thing that can happen is doubt can be a rational process via analytic deconstruction. If I say the word mom, everybody's brain in here just did something. If I say the word mom because your brain recalls your neurological model of your mom. And for most people that means like their prefrontal cortex, their hippocampus, and their anterior cingulate cortex all became active because they were focusing, recalling from memory, and experiencing warm affection. 
Now some other people heard the word mom and their prefrontal cortex turned on, their hippocampus turned on, but also their amygdala turned on because mom was pretty mean and they have trauma related to her. And then some other people had both their anterior cingulate cortex light up and their amygdala, and those people would say about their mother on Facebook that it's complicated. <laughs> now, the same thing happens if you're in a relationship. When I picture my wife, my anterior cingulate cortex lights up like a Christmas tree and my amygdala does nothing because I'd nothing but love her. And this is recorded, right? <laughs> but people fall in love and it's good. Have you ever been in love, like the intoxicating infatuation kind that sticks around longer than it's supposed to? Well, eventually you have a fight and you have another fight and you start to analyze what's happening in your relationship. And when you do that, your prefrontal cortex right here, left eye above that or so, it's where your consciousness lives, the part of you that you identify as you, the observer, doesn't have any feelings. Life's a spreadsheet to the prefrontal cortex. And as it rationally analyzes the situation over time, it removes the anterior cingulate and amygdala response to the image of spouse. And guess what happens? Suddenly one day you say, I just don't feel in love anymore. It turns out that if you want to save a marriage, you need more than therapy. You also have to walk on the beach and hold hands to mold your model of your spouse. And guess what? You have a God model. When I say the word God, your brain does something. Unless you're an atheist, at which point your prefrontal cortex fizzles and goes, nonsense. We'll talk more about that in a couple of slides. So excited I remember the slide order, got to be honest. Okay, doubt can also be an emotional process following trauma. I self-identify that I deconstructed God intellectually, and it's purely a coincidence that that all happened after my Baptist minister dad had an affair. <laughs> Total dink. There was no emotions driving that cart whatsoever. Trauma had nothing to do with it, right? If you believe that, I'll sell you a deed to the Brooklyn Bridge. But the really scary doubt, the kind that people uh, write me on the internet and say they're thinking about killing themselves because they're so caught up in doubt. By the way, people who once believed in God very seriously and then begin to doubt very seriously have a highly elevated risk for suicide. This is not just a first world problem when we have serious doubt. It puts us at odds with our family and odds with our community, and in some way, even odds with ourselves. I'm not doing this so churches get more tithe money. I'm doing this because there is real suffering in the world from doubt. And when you have both rational deconstruction and emotional trauma, doubt becomes this dark night of the soul where you think maybe, just maybe, I should end it. If that's you, I want you to know this morning, there really is hope. There really is hope. And I can prove it with science. Boom! I'm not even going to ask you to read the Bible. We're going straight science today. So there are two dominant neurological models of God in the world. Did you know this? Anybody? Bueller? 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 Yeah? Some of you have heard my stuff. Sorry. Take a, like a five-minute nap. Okay. Let's talk about the structure of the brain. Will that be fun? Okay, I'm about to make you a brain anatomy expert. Hold your hand out like this. 
okay? Take an imaginary walnut, set it right here. That imaginary walnut is your thalamus. Your thalamus is the brain's grand central station because all the trains run through there. Your thalamus sits at the end of your brain stem. Now, mine's pretty messed up right now. <laughs> and uh, it is responsible for your emergent sense of self. Now, take an almond, break it in half. Set one here and one here. Those two almonds are your one amygdala. So the brain has two hemispheres. So a lot of times when we have two of something, we call it one thing. So when I say your amygdala, I'm talking about your two amygdala, which is really just one amygdala. Are you with me? Okay. Your amygdala is your emotional power engine, okay? Fear and anger are born in the amygdala. Your amygdala is why you want to punch the guy that cut you off in traffic. But it's also, it's not that simple, really intense love that amygdala plays a role. Any really strong feeling comes from your amygdala. So you can't just say like amygdala bad, right? Because if you're getting mugged, your amygdala's good. If you want to like really cry at that movie, your amygdala's got to help. So, now take your hand, roll it into a fist, and then take it at a 90 degree angle like this. This is your limbic system. By the way, that's about the size of yours. Ooh. Your limbic system, your monkey brain-ish, mammal brain, this is your spinal column, although your spinal column's not that big unless you are weird, <laughs> or have very small wrists. Uh, that's the, the, the basic brain. Now over here on your thumb, and kind of around to the front, all the way over to your other thumb. Oh, wait, the hand doesn't have hemispheres. Okay, so from your thumb around to your imaginary thumb is your anterior cingulate cortex, my favorite part of the brain because it's where love and compassion live. Okay? And then take your four sheets of imaginary tissue paper and just wrap them around your fist. That's your neocortex. That's your human brain. That's why you can enjoy music, art, why you have culture and language, why you have focus and concentration, all that stuff's in the neocortex. Now, here's the trick. Your amygdala and your prefrontal cortex can't run at the same time. You neurologically cannot be angry and analytical at the same time. Remember that in arguments. If you're angry, you're just trying to win. You might feel like you're so rational, and brain scans say you're lying to yourself. <laughs> now, here's what's interesting in our neurological model of the brain as a hand. There's only two ways people understand God. They show up on brain scans across religions, by the way. The first God, what I call the OG God, is the Old Testament God, and that's a God of anger or wrath. That's the God that will smite you. That's the God that will get you. That's the God that will send the tribes in to kill every woman and child and livestock in the promised land, right? This God gets things done. That God, when you focus on that God and believe in that God, makes your amygdala really active. You actually get angry easier. You can become fearful of outsiders. You experience increased stress and anxiety. However, you get awesome impulse control because God will smite you. So it turns out when people are in really poor conditions of addiction, when people are recovering from uh, all kinds of behavioral problems, the angry God actually works pretty good. There's a reason the childhood faith I came from, the Southern Baptist tradition, did such a good job with alcoholics. 
because they told you if you don't straighten up, you are going to hell forever, right? It did something in the brain. Now, there's another model of God, and that's a God of love, where God's primary attribute is that God is loving. And when you believe in that God, it's different in your brain. You can brain scan people who pray to that God, and you can see they have thicker, richer brain matter in their prefrontal cortex, memory, focus, concentration. They have thicker, richer brain matter measurably in their anterior cingulate cortex. It's literally easier for them to be compassionate. Their amygdala is less likely to respond, and therefore, they have lower stress, they have lower blood pressure, it's easy for them to forgive themselves and forgive others. And when people study this God a lot, they get asymmetric activity in their thalamus, meaning the idea that the world is safe because God loves them has become part of their identity. And these people are some of the most radically forgiving, open, and accepting human beings alive. And so there is a small tradition in the world of science typified by a man named Richard Dawkins, who in his defense is a brilliant evolutionary biologist that says belief in God is harmful. And neuroscientists say no. Belief in a loving God is neurologically beneficial and good for society. That's a key point. That's as close as I get to apologetics. Science refutes the idea that believing in God is a mistake behaviorally and health-wise. Okay? Pretty fun? We doing okay so far? Is my speech slurred at all? Okay, great. Thank you. It, it sounds a little slurred to me. Uh, that's probably perceptive. So, if you accept this idea that forget the objective of the existence of a being named God for a second. Just forget it. If you accept the idea from science that there can be benefits to pondering and exploring God, that might lead the very doubting person to the question, well, how do I get God back in my brain? Because I got to tell you, I know a lot of people who are interested in spiritual things, but they have the neurological God model of an atheist. When they try to picture God, nothing clicks. So how do you go from zero to one? It's the hardest part, right? Because you can't tell a doubting person to just step out on faith. They've already figured out epistemologically why faith is ridiculous. So, step one is to pretend. Now, the first time I said this publicly, an atheist blogger uh, posted an article that said, Christian apologist, Science Mike says, you should pretend God is real. And that was very telling for me. One, to that point, I didn't know I was a Christian apologist. And two, I didn't realize that it was so shocking to tell you to pretend. But here's why you have to pretend. You've got to start building the model. So if you have trouble believing in an all-knowing, all-present, uh, benevolent God who created the universe by conscious action and then um, had problems with sin and so came in the form of his own son to die so that he could sate his own wrath and forgive his own creations. If that's weird to you, that's cool. <laughs> Don't pretend that God is real. <laughs> Literally pick any idea for God that works for you. If you want to be like, 
how about the universe is God? Bingo, boingo, that's fine. It doesn't have to be like, you don't have to like jump into Acts and accept Paul. Half the time, I think Paul is crazy. When I started pretending God was real, I used this axiom now. Forget the nerdiness of a word, axiom. That's an idea in philosophy that you can accept without further inquiry. And what's special about my definition for God at that point in my life is it's based on science. Everything I say right there is scientifically defendable. When I said that God is at least the natural forces that created and sustained the universe, as experienced via a psychosocial model in human brains that naturally emerges from innate biases. So proud of that sentence. Even if that is a comprehensive definition for God, the pursuit of this personal subjective experience can provide meaning, peace, and empathy for others. Congratulations, guys. That's not Christian orthodoxy. If right now you're going, wow, like that's not theologically valid. You're totally right. This is a scaffold. This is not a house. See what I mean? So after I met God again, I was more than half convinced I'd had a hallucination. I needed something for my prefrontal cortex to chew on so that I could enjoy the experience of knowing God. And that was it. Now, this might not be yours. It, it, it's really nerdy. It's good enough that about a quarter million people a year Google it. <laughs> but um, it might not work for you. You might not be this, like, hardcore empiricist. I get it. My point is find some image for God that you can literally play at. It's, when you do that, guess what happens? When you pretend God is real for eight weeks, every single person that does that at the end of the eight weeks reports that they feel closer to God, including self-identified atheists. That's science. Step two, you've planted the seed by pretending. You've given your brain something to focus on, and now you start to pray. And here's the thing. Prayer is awesome. Like, way awesome. How awesome? Well, not only is prayer instrumental to how you know God, but it's one of the most neurologically beneficial things you can do. Reading, which I love to read. Physical exercise, which I hate to exercise. <laughs> And prayer are all about equally beneficial for your brain. Prayer is so effective in clinical trials, it's therapeutic for Alzheimer's and dementia. What? You're telling me by talking to God I might remember where my car keys are? Yes! That's literally science. So. Prayer completely changes your brain. All the stuff I just talked about associated with a loving God makes an assumption, and that assumption is that you are praying. And not only that you are praying, that, uh, <laughs> I messed the order up on my slides. I'm so sorry, guys. I used that joke way earlier, so pretend that slide didn't come up. Um, as you pray, you, did you learn to ride a bike? You know how to ride a bike? When you first learn to ride a bike, you think, Pedal, 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 steer, steer, pedal, 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 steer, steer, pedal, pedal. You literally have to think through any new thing. You have to take this like very analytical verbal process. But as you do it over and over, what happens? It migrates from the outside of the brain to the inside. And it becomes automatic. When that happens, pedal, pedal, pedal became flesh in neurons. So 
when you pray over and over and over, God so loved the world, guess what happens? Word becomes flesh, literally in science. I just think that's awesome. I just love it when like really ancient ideas about God turn out to have modern scientific validity. I don't know. I guess I'm a traditionalist. Prayer also takes you somewhere else. If I closed my eyes right now and started to pray, uh, except when I was an atheist, I prayed every day of my life since I was seven years old for a significant amount of time. So I'm, I have like pretty deep neural hooks for prayer. And when I pray and I, and I talk to God and then I stop and I open my eyes, I'm super disoriented because I felt like I went somewhere else and I came back. And it turns out that's brain science. Your parietal lobe up here tracks where you are in space and people who pray a lot, prayer masters, their parietal lobe gets quiet when they pray. Neurologically, they leave the space they are in. Oh, <laughs> I mean, that's really cool. Here's the thing. Secular meditation doesn't have that effect. Science so far has only found that praying to God neurologically takes you somewhere else. Secular mindfulness meditation has almost all the benefits of religious prayer. But it doesn't take you to transcendence. Isn't that interesting? I'm not making a fact claim about anything. <laughs> I am saying that is interesting. So here's the science of how to pray. Teach us neuroscience to pray. Man, I thought that line would kill. Sorry. <laughs> One, focus on God's love. That's the most important thing about prayer. What do I pray about? How crazy God is for the world and for you. And a great way to do this is to start by focusing on God's love for you and to expand out to your friends and family, to your community, to your city, to your state, to your country, to the planet, to the universe. Here's the funny thing. That like universally works to engineer feelings of awe in human brains is to start with a small focus and expand out in the context of a loving deity. Focus on God's love. What do I pray about? Focus on, now, if you just want to talk to God and be like, hey, God, I think you're ridiculous and I feel really silly right now. That's a pretty good prayer. You know why? Because you just addressed God using a word and your left temporal lobe went, God's an actual thing. Isn't that weird? Like literally just praying makes God real. Um, oh man, I'm right on time. Two, you're gonna pray five times a week, five days a week. Ooh, wait, <laughs> I was with you when it was just like pray when I feel like it. The ritual matters, our brains are driven by ritual. There's a reason why you are all listening to me right now. There's a ritual where someone walks up and has an amplified voice and everyone's looking the same way and you assign authority, you know what's crazy? Neurologically, you give me more authority up here because I'm higher off the ground. If I didn't, like, I just messed it all up. But sometimes I don't tell people that and I make a big point and I move upstage and, like, people remember it more because they had to tilt their head more. And that's the way our brains work, right? So the ritual of praying about the same time every day in a similar space gets your brain into a prayer state faster. Turns out my grandmother was right. Okay. Step three, and this is huge, practice faith and spiritual community. Human beliefs are a function of social identity more than anything else. You have this self-image that you're an autonomous Westerner, a modernist with individuality who makes rational choices and builds a belief system. And the fact is you actually make an amalgam of the beliefs of the five or six people you're closest to. 
So guess what? If believing in God's important to you, and you don't hang out with people who believe in God, it's not neurologically sustainable. That's it. Now, if you're paying attention, I just told you to what? Pray and go to church. That's what my grandmother says about dealing with doubt. The irony is not lost on me that like when we dig through really cutting edge neuroscience, you get my grandmother. <laughs> my grandmother prays 27 hours a day. She goes to church every time the doors are open. And my grandmother says she never, ever doubts that God is real. She's really excited about my book, but she doesn't get it. <laughs> right? Because God's just there. Well, of course, if you put my grandmother a brain scanner and said the word God, the magnet would blow out. Right? <laughs> but what's interesting is my grandmother would ask you to take it on faith. I'm not asking you to take it on faith. You can go to my website and I have links to all these studies. Peer-reviewed, most of the scientists studying this stuff aren't even Christians. They just like putting religious people in brain scanners because religion's so influential in human society, right? So, I have no idea what the next slide is. So hold on a second. Oh man, I'm, so, I'm just... I'm bombing today. Okay, this is a really good one. That's Vincent Van Gogh. He's a ginger. Uh, this is a really early selfie. I don't know about you, I just feel like men with red beards are especially compelling. Here's what I hate about the popular understanding of Van Gogh. You think of Van Gogh and you think of what? That's like the least interesting part of the Van Gogh story. Like, it'd be like if all we knew about Steve Jobs is he went to Reed College. <laughs> Nobody even knows he went to Reed College unless you're really into Apple. But we know Van Gogh cut his ear off. Watch this. Vincent Van Gogh was a profound person of faith. So much that he wanted to be a priest. So he took the priest test, and he failed. Apparently there was an exam. I guess they were really early in standardized testing in the church at that time. And he failed, so he studied really hard, and he took it again, and he failed. So he studied even harder, he took it again, and he failed. And uh, a local bishop had favor on him and said, listen, you can't be a priest, but we can make you a missionary. And missionaries can go to towns where there aren't churches yet, and they can set up churches, and they get to preach and do all the priest kind of stuff. And Van Gogh is like, loophole, awesome. <laughs> so he goes to this town where he's a mission. And uh, he's like an unofficial priest priest. But he actually read the Gospels, which was a problem. Because he'd take all the money the church gave him and give it to the poor. And then he slept in a hay bale behind a bakery. He ate free bread, slept in hay, and would show up to preach. Now, I put on a uniform today. I don't dress like this to watch light TV, right? Because I understand through social convention, not only is a blazer flattering, it sends an unspoken signal that I'm taking this moment seriously. So when Van Gogh shows up smelling like bread covered in hay, his parish is like, this dude is weird. So they raise a collection for him. They give him money and they say, hey man, why don't you go get a, a place to live and some clothes that don't stink? 
And then God took all that money and he gave it to the poor. Which I don't know, like seems vaguely Christ-like. His congregation was furious. And they raised the collection. And they gave him the money. And they said, no, seriously. Go get a blazer. I don't think blazers existed, but I really like blazers. So go get a blazer and a place to live. Any predictions on what Van Gogh did? Yeah, he gave the money and went, he went back to his hay bale. Then they complained to the bishop and he got fired. He was heartbroken. Because Van Gogh wanted to act as he understood Jesus would act. So he went back to France. He became an art dealer. If you like art, maybe an art dealer is not the best occupation because he became so frustrated the way that these reference frames of soul were turned into commodities and traded. So he flunked out of art dealerhood. And in his grief and near homelessness and abject poverty, he began to paint. He painted this. I saw it in person recently, which was a mistake, which is now I realize you cannot take a picture of the starry night. It's so rich and textured. But what I never understood about the starry night, I mean, I see something here. I see beauty and I see melancholy. I feel like I look at this painting and I I see the world like Vincent van Gogh saw it, but knowing his story for the first time, I see that in a warm, quaint town, there's one building where the lights are off, center frame, the church. Center frame. Can you, in this canvas, experience the longing Vincent van Gogh had for the very institution we are in right now? Can you look at that painting and see the world through another person's eyes? And now, ponder that for a moment and answer this question. Is the starry night infallible? What? That's the dumbest question I've ever heard. In fact, like we get so caught up on like the objective facts and what was the earth created in six days and all this stuff. And we're asking the wrong questions. We're looking at the starry night and saying, is it infallible? That's like the worst question you could have. Because I look in Genesis and I read a story of a creation account and I go, man, I know exactly what that snake sounded like. I have heard the same whisper. I've looked at the tree and said, that fruit looks good, right? So the question is not if the starry night is infallible. The question is, is the starry night true? And I would argue that absolutely the starry night is true, just as a library of books called the Bible offer me a true account and perspective of what people over thousands of years understood about the same God that I'm trying to serve. 
the historicity, we can have that debate. There's a lot smarter people than I to do it. But the power of the stories of people of faith trying to understand God absolutely speak to me every day. I'm embarrassed to admit that once again, I'm a person who reads his Bible every day. Every single day. I love it. It's like my second favorite book. <laughs> my first favorite book is How God Changes Your Brain by Andrew Newberg. He's a neuroscientist. <laughs> and that's how I roll. Here's the thing, guys, and I'm going to end on this note almost exactly on time. Science gives us facts. Here, here's, here's the deal. If you want to put a robot on Mars, science is your dog. Right? Like we get two teams on one team, rocket scientists and roboticists. On the other team, monks and deacons. Drake's rocket equations. Pray. Who gets to Mars? Anybody, anybody want to put money on this group? Pretty safe bet. Science kills every other system of human knowledge at uncovering facts about physical reality. It's the bomb.com slash winning. <laughs> so I just let science be science. When science tells me, like, this is the historical consensus on fact X, I go, okay. When science says the universe is like 13.77 billion years old, I go, yeah, they did the math. But science, by its own admission, doesn't speak to meaning. Science can't even tell you what to do with the insights you find in science. And human beings desperately need meaning. Do you know that even though we're wired for self-preservation, if you believe your death has meaning, you will give your own life for that meaning? And guess who wins the meaning game? That's a great, yeah, faith. So I let science be science. But when I figure out what I'm going to do with all these facts, when I figure out, like, there's X amount of food and Y amount of people, Jesus informs what I want to do with all that food. Guys, I am fascinated with a Jewish rabbi that hasn't been seen on the planet in a couple thousand years. But here's why. Like Van Gogh, I read the Gospels. And the Gospels are a story of a bunch of people, generally 12, who had no idea who Jesus was. <laughs> Go read them. If the condition for following Jesus is you know what's going on, the 12 would have never made it. These are books about 12 guys who almost always get it wrong. The only people who ever seem to get it at all are the women, and for some reason we wouldn't let them be disciples, but <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just reading the books. Peter, the rock of the church, he was kind of an idiot. You know what I mean? Like, go read what they understood Jesus. And Jesus would be like, who do you think I am? And they'd be like, you're going to overthrow Caesar. No, sorry, guys. But they followed. And here's what I'm telling you today. Do you have to know resurrection 
divinity, theology, to follow Jesus? Do you have to figure all that out? No. Because the starting point of our faith is a decision to follow this guy and figure it out later. You see how freeing that is? I don't ever worry about having all the right answers. The thing is, I know I'm wrong about a lot of things. I just don't know which things. What I do know is that science informs me that following this selfless man who we say was God makes my brain healthier and makes the world a better place. And that's enough argument for me. Thank you.